0: Now, on documentary on News Talk, producer Sarah Stacey explores the history of Ireland's oldest housing charity, in the Ivy Trust. How Ireland's richest man housed Dublin's poor.
1: Okay, so that there, see, right in front of you there, A Block, obviously, and. Um, We stay there, that ground floor window, that's where we were. That flat, we were there for a few months when you were about two and a half, I'd say. And you go left end, one, two, three, and that's D Block. That's where I was born and raised and lived until I got married.
2: My name is Sarah Stacey, and I'm visiting the Ivy Trust Flats on Kevin Street in Dublin 8. This place has been my second home for as long as I can remember. It's where my grandparents lived, Where my dad grew up and where my auntie and uncle still live. As you just heard I even lived here myself at one time. These amazing red brick buildings date back to the late 19th century and have housed four generations of my family beginning with my great-grandmother. Although I didn't realize it when I was growing up. These flats were just one part of a much bigger project which aimed to improve the living conditions of families like mine.
3: We weren't terribly well off, but at the same time, we were, you know, we were working class and you you got on with things, you know, that was it. And I think it stood to us really in time, you know. It has, you tend to be, if not self-sufficient, but certainly get on with it, you know.
2: It all started in 1890 with a man called Edward Cecil Guinness. Who just so happened to be the wealthiest man in Ireland at the time. He had a vision to provide safe, clean and affordable housing for the city's working population. In this programme I'll be exploring how his housing charity, the Ivy Trust, has been transforming Dubliner's lives for over 130 years. Dublin in the 19th century was regarded as the second city of the British Empire but had some of the worst slums in Europe with thousands of working-class people crammed into overcrowded unsanitary tenement housing, my ancestors among them. To find out more about what life was like at that time I've gone to 14 Henrietta Street, a former tenement house which has been preserved as a museum.
4: My name is Tracy Barden and I am um, an Engagement Coordinator here at 14 Henrietta Street but my job is mainly collecting tenement memories. So the house was built in 17, uh, the late 1740s, 1750s and um, it was a house for one family. The house fell out of favour after the Act of Union because all of these wealthy upper class people, they moved back to the UK. They didn't have to be in Dublin because the parliament was closed here now and they were sitting in London again. So by 1877, Dublin was overcrowded. It was in poverty. People were arriving from the country thinking they could, after the famine as well, thinking they could come up to Dublin, they'd get work, they'd be able to make a living and find somewhere to live. But it wasn't possible, you know. Um, And one man in Dublin at the time called Thomas Vance knew that a house like this could hold a lot of people so he bought the house and he adapted it into flats that was 1877. So um, it was about probably a hundred years old when it was changed to a tenement house. By 1911 on the 1911 census there's a hundred people documented as living in this house alone. Lots of the people that lived here had big families. We know um, in one room there was a family of fifteen. in Another room there was a family of twelve. Two of the smallest rooms in the house actually there was one had a family of eight and one had eleven. You know, and they were really tiny rooms. They were cold and they were dark and they were damp. Anyone that lived in the house was using the outside toilet. So there was people carrying buckets of water up and down the stairs. You know, um, they were using chamber pots and buckets. We're always aware that we're talking about people's homes and people's lives. And this it might be grim and it might be bleak and dirty and grey and damp and dark, but it's someone's home and it's all they had, you know, so we're always aware of that and we're always cautious when we talk about that. So you were proud of where you lived and you just hoped that you got better
2: and and things improved. Poverty was widespread on both sides of the Liffey, but the Liberties in the South Inner City was one of the most deprived areas of all. It was, however, also home to one of the city's biggest employers, the Guinness Brewery, and by the late 19th century it was being run by Edward Cecil Guinness, great-grandson of the original founder Arthur Guinness. Historian Cathy Scuffle
5: Edward Cecil Guinness, as we know, he was born in Clontarf in Dublin in 1847. So think at the time he's born, right in the end of the the famine as such here in Ireland. He's the third son of Sir Benjamin Guinness, who was the first baronet, the first man to hold the title Sir in the Guinness uh, family. He's uh, educated to a BA level in Trinity. And in 1870, he's appointed uh, first as the Sheriff of Dublin, and then he became the city's high sheriff, and then at that point he was also created the Baronet of Castlenack. In 1891, he becomes Baron Ivy, and four years later, he's appointed a knight of St. Patrick, elevated then as Viscount Ivy, and eventually appointed as the Earl of Ivy and the Viscount Elvedon. So when he gets his titles, uh, his philanthropy grows with him. And he becomes the richest man in Ireland because he's got a, such a business uh mind that he develops his brewery and his brewery interests in line with that by
2: 1890 edward cecil guinness could have simply retired a multi-millionaire instead concerned by the conditions in which many of his employees were living he decided to invest in the creation of a charitable housing trust
6: i'm rory guinness and uh, edward cecil guinness was my great great grandfather so Edward Cecil Guinness was an incredible guy in terms of his his vision of life and his appreciation of the people that he worked with. Um, I think his outlook changed significantly after the flotation of the brewery in 1886. So he sold he sold a, a majority of the shareholding uh, of the brewery in 1886. And that was really the liquidity event that gave him the cash to be able to put some of his ideas um, and those that he had learned from running a successful brewery um, into a form which later turned into the Ivor Trust.
5: If you consider what he was doing in business, he was building up his brewery empire. He needs a workforce. It's a time before mechanisation, total mechanisation. We're starting to bring in things like steam in the brewery. They're starting to find ways of doing mechanisation, but production is growing and growing and growing. He needs a healthy workforce to maintain his wealth. And he recognises that he will only get a healthy workforce if they come from good housing conditions if you have good sanitation, if you have a healthy workforce, if you take an interest in your workforce at every stage of their life, they will give back to you in multiple ways, but they will also be in work, on time, uh, fit and healthy. So he recognised that those things went hand in hand, and as a result of which, he put his efforts into improving housing conditions generally for workers in in Dublin and he also put his efforts into developing his brewery into what was then the biggest in the world.
2: The organisation that became known as the Ivy Trust built its first accommodation for Guinness workers at Thomas Court. This was closely followed by the construction of flats at Kevin Street, New Bride Street from 1894 to 1901 and Patrick Street, Bull Alley from 1903 to 1906. These innovative new flats were not just for employees of Guinness but for the general working population of the city. They completely transformed the streetscape in an area that had become extremely run down.
5: We take Bull Alley first of all and what we know as Patrick's Park today. Uh, That would have been a warren of streets and courts, uh, laneways, alleyways, um, surrounding the cathedral. So think of it in a medieval landscape. So that's probably the easiest way to do it. Um, They were very old and very poor quality buildings. And Edward Cecil Guinness would have passed through those streets, going from his home at Stephens Green, to the brewery on a daily basis so he was very aware of the uh, situation in that area uh, it would have been regarded pretty much as a slum area with a lot of street trading you know items literally just hanging out the windows available so it was in very very poor uh, condition the housing in that general area Kevin Street was similar, but slightly better quality. Um, but it was again a combination of houses, yards and courts. You know, the, the idea of a, a surrounded yard. And of course, this backed onto the Cabbage Garden graveyard. From about 1801 onwards, the housing stock in those areas had really steadily declined. Again, we're back to that active union because that removed the money, the wealth from the city. And absentee landlords are operating in both areas.
2: But it wasn't just the streets that changed. For the people who moved into these flats, everyday life changed too. The one
5: main step up was sanitation. The Dublin City Library and Archive have an amazing collection of photographs. There's one image that really strikes me and it's of two privies, two outhouses, with a tap that has no tap on it. It's a flowing, a continuous flow of water into a wooden bucket. Those two privies and that continuous flow of of water were the facilities for 72 people. When you looked at what the Ivy Trust provided, they provided indoor sanitation for every flat that they built. You got your sink, your water with your tap, you got your bathroom. And that was a major step up. Because it completely changed the way hygiene, sanitation, they all go hand in hand with welfare and health. Having the opportunity for um, other facilities such as a wash house, you've got to think of a time when we're pre-refrigeration and we're um, pre-washing machines. And all of these facilities were provided in one form or another. For example, there would have been a cold press for you to put your milk and your meat in that would keep it fresh for longer. Uh, All of these things all served towards improving housing, health and general conditions and welfare for the community around.
3: My name is Paul, Paul Tester, and I grew up in 3E Ivy Buildings. That's in Old Broad Street, so they're the original Ivy Flats. Uh, Patrick Street I think is 1901 and we're 1904, that's when we were My fa- I think my family were the second tenants in there so they would have been certainly there in the early 20th century. Uh, in fact, I know anecdotally one of my uncles was born there when the forecourts was being shelled at the start of the civil war. So they were there until, my family were there until my mother went into a nursing home in... God, this sounds terrible. About 10 years ago nowadays, you know. So up till then, they were they were still the Well, the flat, when you went in, it, first of all, it was a two bedroom flat. So when you went in, there was a, ha- a hallway. Immediately after this, we were on the bottom floor. Sorry, we were on the bottom floor. So number three, when you went into the flat, immediately on, there was a small hallway, immediately on your left, there was a bedroom. Then the hallway ended at the main room, like the living room. And then just beyond that, there was, a, there was a, uh, another bedroom on your left and a small, basically a kitchen I wouldn't describe it as a kitchen, really. There was a massive uh, larder press that was in there. And around the back of that, then, there was what was grandishly termed a veranda, which was basically a drying area that was shielded from the street. Most of the tenants, ourselves included, had put windows on themselves and a board to close it off, and the battery was there. The toilet was there.
7: Anthony was born in '51, wasn't it? No, Steve was born in '51. Yeah, been '51. So they moved
2: yeah. here. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And your granny was here already, was she? Before them? Yeah, she lived in G Block, 150.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
2: My great-grandmother Christina Travers and her eldest daughter were the first Ivy Trust residents in my family. My grandparents, Stephen and Mariah, followed them over to Kevin Street when the tenements they lived in on Longford Street were about to be demolished. Four of their five children were born there, including my auntie Tina and my dad, Pat.
1: It's really two flats knocked together, so the address was 80-81-D. And um, the two old flats, there would be two rooms in each flat. And we had two front doors, but we only used one. The other one was sealed up and uh, that was it really, just four rooms and there was a toilet outside but nobody really wanted to go outside in the cold winter nights so I'm probably one of the last generation the last of the generation i familiar with chamber pots and also there were originally there would have been four flats two each side and there was a communal laundry It was uh,
7: they wouldn't let us move the sink because the other two people used that sink even though there was two sinks in the laundry they had our own toilet and we had a toilet each side, the laundry was in the middle.
1: I believe it or believe it not, it was until around about 1980 was the first time we had an indoor toilet and a bath, hot water inside, fantastic. And we had a a back boiler, which is a heater behind it behind a, the fire. I don't know if people still use those, but it was a it was luxury, you know, new experience. Because as a kid, I vaguely recall being washed in a tin bath in front of the fire.
7: You'd have to fill the tin bath up.
1: And Dad have to fill it up for me would have a bath. That's right. In the bedroom. Yeah. They say out it's out okay
7: Western. filling it up, but
1: emptying it was hard. Emptying it was a hard bit, yeah, yeah. It never seemed strange. It didn't seem unusual. Because
2: everyone had the same.
1: Because everybody had the same, yeah.
2: The flats have, of course, been modernised over the years, but there's one that has remained largely unchanged. Former Ivy Trust Community Officer Kelly Birmingham showed me around 3B Patrick Street.
0: So we're here in uh, the home of Nellie Malloy, who uh, lived here most of her life. I think she was maybe three when she arrived here with the family. Their tenancy began in the early 1900s, I think it was 1907. This flat has been maintained since Nelly passed. Uh, the Ivy Trust purchased her belongings, the, everything that remains here, uh, the piano, the table, the dining chair, the sofa, the lovely overmantle, um, which is Edwardian in its style and has been shortened to fit the room. So you have your um, Zebo. For cleaning the grate, because the the stove maintains the fire, and all the little brushes for cleaning everything down, her cast iron iron, which she would have used all her life. Um, electrification was not huge here. She didn't allow modernisation of the flat. She wanted to keep it in the way that it had always been. Behind you, you'll see there's two fuses. And that's the height of the modernisation that came in here. The only other thing that she allowed, which was mandatory, was the fire alarm uh, system to be installed. So you can see there's one light and there's a, a wireless. In the right-hand side uh, to the front road is the twin room which would have been the room for the children. All the children would have slept in there and there were six children in the family. On the left-hand side is mum and dad's room and there's actually a privacy curtain as well because during the night, they probably would have attended to their ablutions in the room rather than actually going out onto the landing, to the shared bathroom. Nellie did not want uh, a bathroom installed in her flat. She resisted that to the very end. And so that's why we don't have a bathroom or a full kitchen facility in here. Like literally, even the smell when you come in here, it's its like walking into your Nana's house. Mm-hmm. So we're delighted that we have this. Imagine a young person coming in here who has to imagine what it might be like to live with no electricity or minimal electrical items. There's no TV here, for instance. There's certainly no Wi-Fi. And so to actually see what that looks like and imagine what that might feel like for young people today to look back, not that long ago, it's an important uh, teaching tool, I suppose, for young people. Um, But also an appreciation of, this would have been state of the art of its time when it was built.
2: By 1914, the work of the Ivy Trust stood out in a city that was still dominated by poor-quality tenement housing. An inquiry that year shone a light on the repeated failure of the Dublin Housing Authorities to improve general living conditions. It also highlighted the important work that Edward Cecil Guinness was doing to improve conditions for his workers. The housing inquiry
5: of 1914 shook out of a terrible tragedy that happened in Dublin, which was the collapse of tenements in 1913 in the Church Street area of Dublin. Seven people were killed on that occasion, a hundred were left homeless. However, as a result of that, they recognised that the housing stock literally was falling down around them. So they opened up the inquiry initially to... a uh, examine the causes and the effects of that one disaster but realising that it was a citywide uh, thing that could have happened just about anywhere. The inquiry also noted, and this is quite interesting, that very few employers had provided housing for their workers and it was noted at the inquiry that the only exception was that of Guinness, um, who had provided new, good quality housing and a range of facilities and the ones they're speaking about are those in the General Patrick Street area of Dublin.
2: But Edward Cecil Guinness's ambitions went far beyond providing high quality housing. He also wanted to create communities. Between 1902 and 1915, he oversaw the development of a number of amenities for Ivy Trust residents and those in the wider Liberties area. These included St. Patrick's Park, the Ivy Markets, Ivy Baths and the Ivy Play Centre, affectionately known to generations of local children as the Baino. Alan Byrne is a historian and heritage teacher at Liberties College, the former home of the Ivy Play Centre. It
8: opened in 1915. So the Ivy Trust had built a huge amount of accommodation in Dublin, but they were building much more in London. That was the original phase in the 1890s. Uh, From 1899, there's a piece of legislation passed, the uh, Bull Alley Area Improvement Act, and all of the money spent by Lord Ivy, Edward Guinness, was to be on this site here around Bull Alley. So that encompassed Creating a park outside, which was a sort of a focal point for the cathedral, which his father had spent a huge amount of money in the 1860s renovating, housing all the way around the block. Ivy House, the um, the working man's shelter, the Ivy Baths, and then the very last uh, part of that to be built was the Ivy Play Centre. So they originally had a play centre for kids on Francis Street in Myra Hall, I think it is. So that was a temporary section, but this was built for the kids in the area. So as you can see around us here some of the original built heritage is actually still with us so it was built more or less to the specs of a hospital so you'll see behind us here the tiled walls they come to about four and a half foot so they're part of the original construction as well so the idea was the kids from the area could come in it was open most evenings and one of the afternoons uh, the area we're standing in now is currently the reception area of the of the building the liberties college but originally this was The dispensary area, for what was probably the biggest draw to the uh, to the play centre for the kids. When they came here, they got a treat of cocoa and a bun. I remember getting a bun. I I didn't get cocoa though. I got orange squash Mm -hmm. and a cup,
1: plastic cup, I think.
7: Buns were nice. Mm
1: -hmm. Did you like the cocoa?
7: I did. I don't. Then later on in the years, I didn't like it. I don't know. You know, when you're younger, it's nice. Warm.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, I enjoyed it. The times I did spend there.
2: Did you go to the bay now much?
3: I did, yeah, yeah, actually regularly, yeah. I didn't like the shell cocoa particularly, but by the time I came along, they would have had... They still had the buns, uh, but they used to give you, like, dilute drinks, like My Waddy or stuff like that, you know?
8: The building's intention was literally as a space of leisure for kids, uh, a little bit like, I suppose, the formation of the BBC. It was just kind of to educate and entertain and inform. So the kids could come here, they could do different activities depending on what they were interested in. So it was from ages three to about 14. So you would have kids who would be told take their younger kids down and they would drop them off in one of the assembly halls. At the assembly hall down the end of the corridor here, that used to have a big slide in it. Older kids then could take classes in all sorts of things like weaving, needlework was another one that was popular as well, dancing. Every Christmas then they had a big concert here in the largest of the three assembly halls where we are upstairs members of the Guinness family would come particularly Lady Guinness and all the kids would have to curtsy for them so it was just a sort of a social space I was talking to a woman who came here quite regularly and she was telling me about the sort of the hierarchy that tended to develop amongst the kids in here as well so they weren't too keen for kids from outside the area uh, coming in but there was always a big swell coming up to Christmas because you had to attend for a certain amount of days or else you wouldn't get a present at Christmas time as well. So the attendance tended to sh- start shooting up uh, as the year progressed.
7: And a big party like a Christmas. They'd always have parties. So people would queue up to get in. Then you know, mm. maybe somebody wouldn't go all year round. Maybe just try and go mm. then.
1: Mm. I remember playing yeah. like football there. there was a big yard out the back yeah. there too. I remember so that's
7: football. That's what the boys did, was
1: it? Yeah. What did the girls do? You used to do I don't stuff. Know,
7: there was a maypole. They used to.
1: It was always very busy, I'd say, wasn't
7: it? Yeah, yeah it was always packed. As I said, the queue is to go in. <laughs> yeah?
1: Different time.
8: Yeah. The demand for the play centre starts to diminish in the 1960s. It's a partial mix of a few different factors. On the one hand, you have the uh, growth of a lot of urban estates outside of this area, particularly from the 1940s through the 50s and 60s. So people are sort of leaving this part of the city, moving in towards the suburbs. You also have the advent of you know, radio, television, other sort of after-school activities. So there's a big reported drop-off in numbers in the 1960s onwards. Uh, in 1959, there was a report published, kind of a 50 years of the play centre. They estimated that almost 8 million kids probably attended here during that 50 year period of 8 million attendances, which is quite remarkable, really. The name the Bano has been the subject of a few myths. The first time I encountered this name was that someone had told me that the free cocoa that the kids used to get, they didn't grind the beans down properly. And obviously in the Dublin slang, a bean is a bane. And that's where it came from. It probably came from the word beano, which is the same as the beano comic. So this is an old word for a kind of a big free-for-all or a big giveaway or a kind of a big party. So the local kids called it the beano, as opposed to the Ivy Play Centre. Uh, there's a Dublin canvas just on the on the crossroads down there where someone has taken a few lines from one of the songs that they used to sing, which was uh, Tiptoe to the Baino, Where the Kids Go for the Bun and cocoa.
0: You're listening to Documentary on Talk, and this is the Ivy Trust, how Ireland's richest man housed Dublin's poor.
2: Edward Cecil Guinness also addressed the issue of homelessness in the area when he opened a hostel for single men in 1905, still going strong today.
5: If we were to compare homelessness in the early 1900s to homelessness now, there is a a, a difference. And whereas we had overcrowding and slum conditions, people found a way of getting a roof over their heads in the early 1900s. The group that didn't were soldiers, sailors and maybe merchant seamen who, for whatever reason, may have got... I'd say stranded in Dublin, or held up in Dublin while works were being done on their various ships or whatever that was in the area. They would have needed shelter. So in the main, that's why it was for single men, they were the ones who benefited from the hostel. But it wasn't just a bed for the night, it was shelter, it was food, it was clothing. Because if you had been stranded in the wrong port for for no fault of your own, you may not have had those facilities and this provided it for them. And even today, uh, the Ivy Hostel provides a very similar service. It provides clothing, it provides bed and general assistance. It even assisted with repatriation if necessary. Certainly, it's siting with a whole community around it, benefited hugely from that because it was very much part of the local community. People would send down Close, for example, you, you had an automatic route to, um, you know, clearing out the wardrobe, went to the Ivy Hostel, that type of thing. So, um, it it, it, beca- it was unique in that sense that it was part of a community, possibly yes, one of the biggest ones in the city, um, certainly one of the more important ones.
0: The hostel itself is. Um it used to house over 500 men a night and they were in cubicle style accommodation. So in the 1990s, it was re-configured um, internally uh, floor by floor and each man has their own room. It is for men only. But when it comes to the modern iteration of homelessness, we're turning away people every single day because we are full to the gills and we could be full four times over, unfortunately. And. Um, It's a very sad indictment on society and how we are today that so many people are struggling to find somewhere to live. So uh, in what the hostel does, it does very well. There's um, a nominal rent uh, that people pay. There's no obligation on people to get out at a particular time. They have a key to their door. They come and go as they please. They can be working. A lot of the residents are working. Imagine in this day and age that we are having people who are working in full time jobs who cannot afford to pay rent in the city. That's not a sustainable model. So the Ivy Trust fills that need in particular, Um, people who come to the city and maybe don't have any other family here in in the country even. some of those people would come and live in the hostel. One of the things that is prized within the hostel environment is the privacy and autonomy of each individual. The only time there's any kind of intervention is if there's a difficulty. For
2: all its hardships, tenement life in Dublin was known for its strong sense of community. And this was a spirit that the Ivy Trust looked to recreate.
3: A lot of people were in the flats where related, So, like, I had cousins. Um, my mother's brother lived up in 15. So that was our relations, then other flats, guys that I piled around equally would have had cousins from one side or another within the flats. So it was, everybody knew, it's not that everybody was in one another's area, they weren't. Um, but we all, like, a lot of people knew one another.
1: We were very close families, mean, we didn't really think about it at the time. But it is a very Dublin, working class, ivy buildings type of thing. It is a certain, there's a certain sense of community here, but there's several generations together. It was just taken for granted. I don't know if that happens anymore. Mm-hmm. Everybody kind of live in their own little satellites, you
5: know. The one thing that holds that community together is the interaction between the generations. So grandparents minding grandchildren, um, grandparents who say want to shop in... Mead Street on a Saturday and the daughter or the son goes with them. That type of intergeneration linkage, that type of intergeneration support is hugely important in the Liberties and that I think is what is the glue that holds the community together.
1: First house we bought when I was married and I found it very hard to adjust. And this is a house in Dublin now, to the quiet because the flats were so noisy. But it was a comforting noise. I love that noise. I still do. I love to hear people, you can hear the devices and everything echoing. People coming in from the pub at night and saying good night to one another and whatnot and chats outside the blocks under the windows. And but you felt safe because you were just part of this one big block, you know, and it was great. You're surrounded by people, you've got people above, people below. And it's just something special.
2: Edward Cecil Guinness died in nineteen twenty-seven but the Guinness family carried on the Ivy Trust's important work. As the city expanded over the following decades, the Trust built new housing in Crumlin and Rathmines, as well as adding more blocks and shopfronts to the flats at Kevin Street. Much needed renovations took place in the 1980s and 90s, and as a young child, I remember my grandparents moved from their original flat in D Block to a new one in F Block, where my auntie and cousins lived. In some ways, it marked the end of an era. But yeah, Nan and Grandad moved in here as mm-hmm. well. Did they think they could move back in or were they told she they couldn't? She, she thought she could move back into the flat, but
7: then it turned out it was only a uh, one bedroom. Um, That's what she missed that flat. Ah, she yeah, yeah, only right, was here yeah. five months, you know, that really, yeah. Yeah, she
1: mm-hmm. did miss it, it wasn't the same. It didn't no. feel the same for her, it didn't no. feel the same for us either. No. But
7: Cause I know we were only here, but still. still it's not
1: did. the same, you know. No. It's just See, the pull of that place, I'm not getting all romantic about it, pull of the place at the beginning like it's hard to kind of change Yeah, you know you're only moving people that say you're ridiculous it's like moving from house number one to house number three or four or something but it's different it's all the associations even the neighbours all the stuff that's happened there you're not moving very far you're still in the ivy buildings but it's the pull of That was your home for so many years. And that's where
2: your kids grew up as well.
1: Yeah, and the the new place didn't feel that familiar. It just felt different. It was more modern, but it felt different.
7: Well, up here, there was no really old neighbours.
5: No. They were all new neighbours. But a lot of the old neighbours had died out and just moved. People moved out to the suburbs. So at the same time this was all going on, the 70s, the 80s and the early 90s, Places like Talla are being built, Clondalkin is being built and people are shifting out to the suburbs where you have a brand new home with all the facilities you're looking for and you can get a phone the next week. Simple things like that. These houses in the suburbs had central heating, something only people in the inner city could nearly dream of, you know, you wouldn't have got. And it also meant that there were new schools being built in the suburbs, which had better facilities than the uh, city centre schools would have had at the time. To my mind, it's the, the road plans were the huge change. Add that to the fact that you had regeneration or refurbishment going on in the trust and then later on in the other corporation developments in the area, that all created an upheaval in what had been a very stable community.
0: Modernisation is something that is essential. The buildings require, the older buildings in particular, require huge investment in order to maintain them to the standards that they need to be at for functionality. Um, within all of that, you'll have people who want to protect their history and their identity within the space um, but maybe can't afford to look after the upkeep of a building that requires, it might be a listed building for instance, and it requires a huge investment for conservation. So That makes it an attractive option for people who want to live in somewhere that has such a strong identity. I would be loath to criticise anybody who improves the area because the eradication of derelict sites, the best use of the the spaces that we have, the improvements to the green areas, the investment by all who live and work and contribute to the area is very, very important, but it's how we do that and making sure that we don't leave anybody behind is really important. When Edward Cecil Guinness founded the
2: Ivy Trust in 1890, Dublin was in the midst of a housing crisis. Today, the city and the country as a whole is once again grappling with similar issues. Organisations like the Ivy Trust are arguably more important than ever. And as current chairman Rory Guinness explains, it continues to play its part in creating communities, both within the city centre and beyond.
6: The thing that I'm really excited about is how we can bring more communities. That means more homes to people in this terrible housing crisis. Um, And that means we have to be agile. That means we have to have brilliant working relationships with local and central government. And that means that uh, we've got to be innovative. And I think that's the one thing that, if I look back on the history of the trust, this sense of innovation, this sense of being the first to do something, this, this sense of of always putting our tenants first. That's, that's the thing that I really get excited by. It's going to be a fascinating time because there's going to be a, a lot of new languages that we've got to learn. There's got to be a lot of new cultures that we've got to learn. We've got to figure out ways of breaking down those barriers between people to make sure that they're happy in their own communities. That's a challenge for us as, a, as 132 years old, but it's also a reflection of how far Ireland has come and how superb its its response has been to so many crises across the globe. And as a housing charity, I want to make sure that our response is as generous as those who have opened their doors to, to those in difficulty through the centuries. So it's a, it's a challenging time, um, but but we are going to be playing our part. And and I know, f- without a shadow of a doubt, that we're going to be looking after more and more people, and doing so in the very particular Ivy Trust style that we've come to develop over five generations of Guinness family.
0: The Ivy Trust at the moment is in an expansion zone, Um, so they have new estates coming on stream. Uh, the latest one that came on stream was out in Lucan, in Holwell, and Lucan, in Adamstown district. Um, so that's kind of going out into the county bounds. Um that's really important because, you know, establishing communities in areas where there hasn't been a community, it's a big challenge. Like Clongriffin is a huge area and very little in the likes of... Uh, community infrastructure that actually supports the communities to live there so as an experienced organisation stepping into that we've been contributing to work with the Northside Partnership on a study that was done by Dr Maria Quinlan called Forgotten Communities and identifies some areas that need a bit of work Um, the next estate that's coming on stream is another one in Clay Farm, Leopardstown which is another phase of an already established community out there Um, and then there's others coming on stream in the coming years so uh, watch this space and we are advertising for staff as an organization and although I have moved on to a new work role I'm very much uh, still a part of the Ivy Trust and um, I think it's something once you're in the trust you're part of the family you're part of the clan um, and it's not easy to leave because it is such a strong community and there's such connection with all of the team and the residents and the people who support those residents uh, to be their best selves and it really is a privilege.
1: I would move back in here in a heartbeat, and that's being honest. It's just the older you get, you know, your children, you being one of them, grow up and your perspective changes, and I would just like to come back here. It's not going to happen, you know. It's not going to happen for all sorts of reasons. Nothing to do with me, it's just the way things are. But yeah, the older I get, the more connected I feel to the place. I think you don't really notice stuff when you're in your teens or your 20s, you're you're like self-obsessed, you're getting on. Trying to you know build your life, experience new things, but there's an all saying something to the effect of that you you go off, but you always come back in the end yeah, to your roots. And I do feel that very strongly. I love love coming up here.
2: And obviously, you still live here. Would you have you ever thought you'd want to move somewhere else, or just no, not
7: now, no. You did for a while. I did live in Talbot for a year and a half, then moved back to be in. uh was it, It was only two, mm. and then. Moved around here, then when Audrey was thirteen, I could have moved the house back in. Yeah, the house. <laughs> I loved the house, but not where it was. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was
2: probably too quiet, was it? Yeah, yeah,
7: yeah. I missed. I used to come in every day, and then when Audrey started school, we had to stay
3: out there. But
1: no. That's it. No, you missed the bustle. No. You missed the noise. I found it too quiet yeah. as well there. Yeah.
3: Mm. Geldof in his book described all his memories of Dublin in the seventies and that in grey, but my memories as a kid in the flats, they're definitely in colour. You know, people move on and move out. I wouldn't go back, you know. I think it's just part of my life, and a very positive part of it, but I wouldn't go back, you know. I'm very proud of coming from there, you know.
5: I think the the strength of Edward Guinness is that he saw housing from the point of view of what people needed rather than the point of view... Of what a profiteer might need, so you know he he looked at it from the point of view of people first. What do you need to create a safe, sustainable community? What do you need to rear your family? Uh, what do you need maybe to live out your life? You know, so can this house or this cottage or this flat give you all of that? Is that what you particularly need? And the supports were there for you. So he didn't do it for a profit, he did it for the welfare of people. He looked at it from the point of view of people. So that's the spirit of philanthropy, and that's the philanthropist in Edward Cecil Guinness. Have a look back on videos, promotional videos, that have been done in the area over the last 10, 20 years. So... 20 years back, you would see maybe the famous Amy Mac walking the streets of the Liberties, talking to people. He shows you a little bit of buildings, but he mainly meets the people. If you look at the videos made in the last 5 to 10 years, they're drone images of sites. This, we could put so many apartments here, we could put so many student accommodation there, we could build a hotel here. There's no people in those videos. That is the most obvious change I can see. We now look at the area as a potential development site. We don't look at it as a place for people.
6: What you find with Edward Tussle Guinness is that he was incredibly practical. Um, So the story I love is the fact that he he personally oversaw the building of the initial Ivy buildings. Um, And only once they were built did he turn them over to a set of trustees with the keys... And he said, there you go. Don't mess it up. Um, And we have been benefiting from his legacy in terms of not just the care that he took in the buildings, but also that sense of responsibility that this is one man's vision. And I think that vision came from the idea that was imbued in him from his father going all the way back to the original Arthur Guinness back in 1759 when he signed the lease on St James's Gate. And that is that Dublin has been good for us. Dublin has been really good for the Guinness family. And uh, there's a certain element of social responsibility that comes with the name Guinness. Um, But there's also a sense of actually you want to respect people and, and what better a way of doing that. Is, is by providing them with a community in which they can lead their own lives free from some of the um, trials and tribulations that, that they might otherwise be facing
0: philanthropy is something that is, I suppose, underactivated in Ireland. Um, maybe we assume that it is being done and that we do it very well, but actually we can do better. And there's a lot of new money in Ireland, and I would encourage anybody who is uh, is in that zone of having um, lots of privilege to extend that privilege to the people who made that privilege possible, because that's the beautiful relationship between what the Ivy Trust and the Guinness family established in that they saw a need in the community. The people who live and work that make this city tick every single day. And not just the city, but beyond the city. You know, the, the, the mutually beneficial relationship of how that works. Uh, when we support people to live well, oh, everything flourishes beyond that. So an economy does extremely well when the people who serve that economy are taken care of.
3: their philanthropy was was like that it was the first thing you need is it's like Maslow's you know uh, what's it the pyramid of needs and And the first thing you need is food and shelter obviously a lot of the people in the area wouldn't have had the means to have proper shelter so they provided that the families provided all their love and affection for you but I mean once you have somewhere that's you know that's affordable which the flats definitely were and still are indeed which is the way so you had a Somewhere that's affordable, somewhere that's well-maintained. And if it's well-maintained, it helps everybody in the area. They treat the place with respect. I mean, if it's not looked after by whoever owns it, be it a private corporation or the city council, or whoever people won't have respect for it. But if it's maintained and that, the people will take over. So Look like what you see that's happening in Kevin Street at the area with the gardens and all, which is absolutely fantastic. I mean, they've taken it on, and they're getting support because they're doing it. But I mean, if you get the ball rolling, and you say, "Well, we'll do the labour. What can you do for us?" People will come along and help, and that's what's happening.
0: So, social justice is not just um, is not just a, a throwaway comment or a throwaway idea uh, or a, a way of living. It is something that actually is essential, and if we don't pay attention to it, we run the risk of a fractured society, and we need to be careful and mindful of our city that we don't go into that very dangerous zone. And I think we're on the cusp of a lot of change in this country with population growth. Um, a lot of new people come in to live and contribute to society in this country. We need workers, we need people who are available to us, but we need places for those people to live, and the Ivy Trust is just as relevant today as when it was first built. Ivy Trust, How Ireland's Richest Man Housed Dublin's Poor was produced and presented by Sarah Stacey with additional production by Daniel Cahill and music composed by Emily Worrell. It was funded by Commission Man with the Television Licence Fee. For more documentaries, visit newstalk.com.